So hello here and welcome. Uh, I'm your host, Konstantin Kogan, and we're at Holistic Investment. And it is my pleasure to have here today Jake Brookman, who's a founder and CEO at CoinFund. Hi, Jake. Hi, Konstantin. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me on. Thank you for being here. And uh, traditionally, we'll start with a disclaimer. Uh, so this content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Uh, so Jake, you've been like one of those people who I can call probably like, you know, the crypto OGs, right? now. like started pretty early and uh, uh, you're very knowledgeable specifically in DeFi context and your fund is doing great and we're talking, we're going to talk about it today. So I know that one of your favorite topics is like, you know, DEX and DeFi and the growth of, you know, different aggregators and different new layers. And I know you've made a bunch of great investments out there. So before we go there also, like, you know, this is just a pre-announcement. So can you like just explain our listeners like a little bit like about your personal story? How did you get to this crypto rabbit hole? Absolutely. Um, I will, I'm happy to tell you. So I'm, I'm a technologist. I'm, you know, I, I have a, a degree in mathematics and computer science. I went to, to Rutgers in New Jersey in the math program. And then I was at NYU Courant uh, Institute of Mathematical Sciences. Um, I'm always, I've always been like a professional, almost like early adopter of technology. So I had like a, like a mobile phone pretty early. I had like the first iPhone back in the days when you couldn't really hear anything through it if you were in New York because the street was like just too loud uh, and it wasn't loud enough. Um, and I and I got introduced to Bitcoin like pretty, pretty early uh, in, in 2011. Um, so, so in my career, I worked in, you know, mostly in the uh, financial uh, technology space. Um, I, I did a stint at Amazon as a technical product manager and engineer for about two years in ad tech. But other than that, I worked in hedge funds, uh, you know, doing quantitative research and trading. Uh, and then I also worked at, as a CTO of a fintech company called Triton Research, which did some pretty interesting um, research on pre-IPO private technology companies. What we did was like kind of source public information about them from the Internet and reconstructed their financial models. So that was like a very interesting uh, problem in business. Um, and then, like I said, along the way, I learned about Bitcoin. I, you know, I became an investor in Bitcoin in earnest, probably like late, I think it was November 2013 on that upslope to 1200 um, and was just kind of watching the space ever since. And then I, you know, was mining, uh, mining Ethereum in the early days. I think CoinFund mined one of the, the very first blocks on Ethereum Frontier, I think a couple of blocks in the first thousand there. Um, so, so CoinFund's been around and, and as a fund, you know, this was sort of my strategy to, uh, to get exposure to blockchain. I wanted to work in this exciting growth area full time. Um, I got the sense that I probably shouldn't do a startup yet. Like this technology is going to develop quite a bit. Um, that theory, that theory turned out to be true. Um, became an investor. And so that first fund, you know, was really one of the first U.S. based funds, uh, really in the world. Uh, what also, was the year? Uh, uh, it launched July 1st, 2015, and it was, you know, it was one of the first funds that considered digital assets as an asset class. I, you know, the story I always tell is I read Vitalik's white paper at work one day, and then I kind of put, put it down and looked at the wall for 30 minutes and thought about tokens and was like, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's very <laughs> interesting. And so, you know, so, so that fund really looked at that kind of asset as a new asset class. And it's really funny, like the very early, uh, kind of like white papers for coin funds, they only referred to cryptocurrencies because they're, you know, that, that was the only like kind of blockchain primitive available. But later you got tokens and, and, and the design space of digital assets became so, so interesting. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit uh, about me, but, but since then I've been working, you know, in blockchain full time since early 2016. Uh, we're now about to raise our, our fourth fund on our platform. We've had, and a lot of interesting uh, kind of successes in, as investors uh, across different funds, partnered with Venrock, big VC firm here in the U.S., originally Money of the Rockefeller family, uh, work with David Pakman from Venrock pretty regularly on investments and, you know, just really plugged into all aspects of the blockchain space. 
No, it's it's great, and I know that you've been well, like if if you actually started in 2015, that means you're probably one of the first 50 funds, you know, like in the world, actually, like, so that was a statistic. So that's impressive. And I'm sure there you've done a lot of research, you've done a lot of, you know, uh, great, uh, uh, like due diligences of, of projects. So uh, if you were to quantify like your this journey, like in five years, right, from 2015 to, to 2020. So can you talk about the progress where we were like, you know, with the cryptocurrency stage as you said like it was like it was primitive in a way like and now we're talking about like a different uh tokens you know like stable coins you know like different crypto assets like they're not like one or two there's like you know dozens of them right now like different categories not even talking about like thousands of different coins so what is your primary focus like of your fund uh, of coin fund and uh what is your strategy if you can check them because i know you have a pretty interesting innovative strategy Yeah, I would say, you know, like we, we, we've called it network lifecycle investment um, in the past, uh, but, but essentially the core thesis across all of our funds, I mean, today we're, we're more like a fund platform with a bunch of different funds, but the core thesis that kind of unites them is this idea that crypto networks are really disruptive um, new organizational structures for services that are highly, highly competitive with um kind of traditional companies that are the classical providers and middlemen and provisioners of all the services that we use today, right? And, and to make that a little bit more concrete, you know, Amazon provides uh, cloud storage, but in the future, cloud storage will be provided by a decentralized network of small and medium providers um, who are all uh, united in this blockchain-enabled network and has a native asset It captures the governance and the value um, you know, accrual of that of that network. So the core thesis from of CoinFund is investing in such things and also the traditional companies that enable um, this stack to flourish. And these companies are, you know, CoinList for issuance. They're Block Daemon for, uh, run, you know, running network node infrastructure. Um, they're sort of exchange infrastructure. They're banking services. They're crypto-enabled companies that are using some of these value propositions of crypto networks to create highly competitive businesses. And as a matter of fact, in my blog just recently, I published this post called What We Look For, the Nine Core Value Propositions of Crypto Networks that really kind of explains exactly what those properties are. Now, the interesting part, Constantine, is that, you know, just like companies have a life cycle, networks also have a life cycle. They start as a couple of people. Founders come together, they start a pretty traditional entity, they might take a little bit of venture capital, and they create grand plans, you know, for this network. Uh, and then they build the network and kind of put it into testnet and put it into production. But this is a very early stage of the network, like it requires bootstrapping, it requires capital, it requires liquidity, uh, whatever the case may be, right, like it needs to actually come up and become functional. And this is the second stage, it's called the bootstrapping stage. And then once that network starts providing service and achieves a little bit of product market fit, and we do see, we do see a couple of areas, amazingly now, uh, especially this year, that are achieving or starting to achieve real product market fit, um, then those networks become more mature and their, their assets become higher cap, more liquid, right? And then they become sort of more mature production assets. So these three stages of the, of the network lifecycle is what we cover at CoinFund. We have uh, Seth Ginz, one of our partners, runs our uh, CoinFund Liquid Opportunities Fund, and that covers more of that later mature liquid stage. Um, and then sort of our, our uh, hybrid fund and our VC fund are going to be covering the first two stages, like pre-seed, seed, Series A investments, um, you know, in these networks and their key enabling infrastructure, but also very non-trivially, that second stage of bootstrapping is now becoming a huge, huge area for investors because networks, they want to hear that investors are actually adding value. They're actively participating in governance. They're increasing liquidity on the network and helping the network succeed. And so we've been doing that discipline also since about 2018. Um, and, our, and our funds also like very actively participate uh, in that stage. 
So let me ask you like more, I would say, uh, in particular, the question, like if you would compare it to traditional VC, like you as, an, uh, as a company who is a professional, what do you do? And you, you know how to do diligent networks. And, you know, there's a typical criticism, like how many networks do we need? Like, you know, that probably not more than 10, right? You know, the big one. So the question is like, how do you even evaluate the opportunity when you're entering the deal? Like, you know, and, and the other, like, uh, I would say second question is like, if you were to compare the difference between traditional VC investment and the equity of the company and investment in the equity or the tokens, you know, specifically, what will be the major distinction like for some people who never did that before? Yeah. So let me, let me take the question one at a time. So, so we are a thesis driven and trend driven fund. And let me, let me explain what I mean. So, when you know this is a highly technological space and we're making highly complex digital technology and economic technology which is also a new a new area and what we see in every vertical of blockchain is essentially this exponential innovation curve you know someone comes around and creates uniswap and someone else comes around and innovates on uniswap and that's balancer with multi asset portfolios <laughs> then someone comes around and innovates on both of those because they want to try to minimize this problem of impermanent loss that uh, decentralized exchanges like Balancer and Uniswap have. That someone else is going to come around and like add other features, right? And so um, if you're a technically minded investor, then it is fairly easy to look at the technology, look at sort of what's in market, look at what's feasible, look at the trend of where things are going and make a prediction, a pretty educated one about like, What's going to happen next? I mean, um, like one thing that we thought was going to happen at the end of 2016, I remember writing about this, is that DEXs were going to capture a bunch of liquidity in 2017. That did not happen um, until this year. It's 2020, right? So we definitely underestimated it a little bit. Um, but this year, what happened is this innovation curve went into effect. AMMs really hit market. They discovered liquidity mining programs. They got a ton of liquidity. And now I think the 24-hour volume of, of DEXs is, has been about 1.2 billion. I, I checked earlier this morning. Um, and it was literally like six months ago, it was like literally a few million a day. So that's like incredible growth. And by the way, there's something like, you know, 100 to $150 billion of exchange volume and blockchain at large. And so we're, these DEXs have this huge addressable uh, you know, addressable volume to hit. Um, so, so as a fund, you know, we look at these trends, we look at these innovation curves, and we invest alongside of, uh, along those curves, right? Like it, one dimension is time. You have to keep investing in, in the technologies as they keep innovating. Um, and then, and then also another aspect of blockchain is that it's, it's such a widely applicable technology, right? So it's almost like a database. A database is applicable in, in essentially any industry, and so are blockchains. And so, like, we find ourselves investing across verticals all the time, and we're not like, you know, the typical tech fund will be like, oh, we're, we're an AI fund. Uh, but we don't do that. We have, we, have to, we have to do AI, and we have to do financial services, and we have to do insurance, and, you know, and we have to do, uh, you know, art marketplaces and, and, and everything like that. So uh, we find ourselves being generalist investors so i hope that i hope that answers your your first question and i think your second question was about was, was it equity versus tokens yeah well I, i'll give an example for example when you, if you were to explain imagine there's an lp your potential investor a limited partner who wants to participate with you in some deals right and who wants to trust your you know your expertise and loves your thesis you know and understand that you guys are smart you've been successful but now just if you were to explain such person, like who's, you know, who's genuine, who's a, can be a fan, an enthusiast, right? But does not understand all the technicalities, like, you know, when you say like Uniswap, well, it's not easy to explain. It's like, you know what, as decentralized exchange is like, is basically, if to simplify the, 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 what it is, right? It's like a market maker, like, you know, just like it's on chain and it's like, you know, two different smart contracts and they're in the, you have to explain what it's ERC20 tokens and et cetera. So, as you mentioned, it's like highly technical um, and very like, you know, the peak of the iceberg, like of all the innovations in, in the space. And, but you still have to apply, you know, 
language, human language to explain it, right? So how would you do that? Like, you know, to just maybe find some traditional examples so I can and, and explain yeah. your pieces. Absolutely. I, I mean, the, I think the, the way to explain crypto networks in, in, in sort of common language is just to say, look, this is a, a different, almost not a corporate structure, but a different organizational structure for a business. And that business might be cloud storage. It might be computation. It might be domain name registration. It might be uh, a marketplace where logo designers design logos for you, you know, whatever it is. But, but marketplaces, right, are like a huge uh, component of what blockchain disrupts. And so once you put a marketplace into uh, the format of a decentralized network, um, you actually have a very traditional business model. Uh, and that business model is that the provider of the marketplace assesses a transaction fee on the people who are transacting on that marketplace. And once you have that traditional business model, um, that creates a cash flow. And that cash flow is captured in an asset. And of course, that asset is a digital asset, which is the native asset of the network. So in many ways, you know, you can probably simplify and really oversimplify um, the idea of crypto networks as, and, and digital uh, native assets as stocks of decentralized businesses, right? Or equity of decentralized businesses. But of course, the reason that that's an oversimplification is because, you know, stocks and bonds and like traditional instruments, they have a very limited design space. And what we see in crypto networks is the way that you can design these digital assets has a very rich and really infinite design space. And so we'll see things like stocks, but we'll also see, you know, governance tokens, we'll see utility tokens, we'll see payment tokens, we'll see stable coins. You know, we, we see a whole zoology of different assets and how they capture value is totally and utterly different. And so that's what makes blockchain so, blockchain analysis so interesting. No, you're totally right. But that may, on, on the one hand, it's a positive side. On the other hand, it makes it a little bit, a little bit more complex for anyone who's new to the space. You know, he needs to basically go over all the taxonomy of the crypto assets and understand why they're there, like what's the value, like, you know, how you calculate, you know, it's not your typical like ROI, EBITDA and other <laughs> other parameters, right? So you need to understand technical aspects. So, um, so that I think it slows down a little bit the adoption, right? You know, so if I were to ask you, like, uh, I mean, right now we're seeing like increasingly high numbers in uh, DeFi, uh, like just like the volumes the, the per day, like, you know, and, you know, gen generally, like, you know, the adoption is coming up. But I, t I spoke to some traditional friends, you know, coming from the investment banking. They're saying like, well, the reason that's happening just because you're now we're now considering it as a lending, like, you know, as a as a Klondike for lending, because uh, of course, banks cannot allow you to pay out like 8% uh, you know, per annum, right? So like, which a lot of the protocols, as we know, like, you know, just like you're either you're staking or you're lending your crypto asset, they allow you to do that, right? So I know that you've made some prominent investment in this space. So maybe you can talk a little bit about like to emphasize the add value of such uh, existing protocols. Uh, you mean in lending in particular or just in DeFi in general? In DeFi in general, like why do you think is DEX like right now is becoming like, you know, so well adopted and the traditional uh, folks like from, you know, from Wall Street are also, you know, stepping by like Vanrock is a good example, as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I mean, look, a lot of it also has to do with who are the participants are and how and what, what is the process that blockchain is going through in order to become adopted? And so my mental model, well, first of all, let me just say this. So we always thought, and, and in traditional investing, we always think, right, that there are these like three layers. There's like the, the base layer, like the infrastructure layer, and then there's dApps. I'm now more convinced than ever that there's no such thing as dApps. And there's really no such thing as base layers either. I think it's all just protocols all the way down. And then what you have on top is this like tiny thin layer of interfaces. And what you'll have later is like more traditional companies or businesses building on top of that. Um, so this is sort of the, the process we've been going through. We've been like building layer upon layer upon layer of protocols. You know, we started with base layer protocols. Then we started with like DEX protocols. Now we're in the aggregation layer where things like one inch and Paraswap and Zapper are actually aggregating multiple transactions. And really this has all been sort of a building up to the top toward the consumer. 
And, and, and what this does is it creates two kinds of users in blockchain. There are the crypto native users who are really versed in like how these protocols work. You know, they, they know how to use MetaMask. They know about um, blockchains. You know, they can manage private keys. And most importantly, they can be active participants in the protocols. These are the people who are adding liquidity that are being on the supply side of all of these things. And then, of course, there's the early consumer adopters who are much less technical, much less savvy, and who have we've seen relatively little adoption you know, from them. But of course, we're always on this road to deliver products to them. And I, and I actually think we're very, very close. Given what we've seen in DeFi, um, we've now created enough, first of all, value propositions that we can put in front of regular users that they can understand. And second of all, experiences and throughput and scalability and user interfaces um, that they can actually use like they use traditional apps. And what that looks like to me is, is very simple, Constantine. It's just a bank app. It's a challenger bank app in your phone where, which provides for you um, very traditional financial services like a money market account where you're earning a, a nice return, not 70 basis points like at Goldman Marcus, um, but actually more like 5% APY. Um, it's a place where you could borrow money by depositing assets. It's a place where you can maybe get insurance, uh, you know, for certain things. It's a place where you could play a lossless lottery. It's a place where you can invest uh, your crypto in general, right? And and I think like that product, the wallet, where a mainstream user can do that without having to worry about keys and without worrying about um, kind of the onboarding from dollars into crypto, like that's going to be the first really killer consumer app. Uh, in, in blockchain, right? And so our investments in DeFi are anticipating that adoption. Um, and we've made a couple. Uh, or at the end of last year, we invested in Balancer, uh, which is a decentralized exchange. We invested in Union Protocol, which is an unsecured on-chain lending protocol, uh, as well as Open, which is an options uh, slash insurance protocol. And uh, we're also in the process of making a couple of uh, DeFi investments. Today, recently, we announced our investment in Zapper. So now let's go into some examples, right? And of your investment portfolio and what's the, how do you approach, you know, like uh, uh, in your investment thesis, like, you know, to why to invest in those, right? So uh, uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, I'm sure, you know, like Ivan in tech, you know, who's a popular like blogger in the yes. space, like, and he recently announced, uh, like there was an interesting, like uh, uh, episode where he's saying that, you know, like there's a lot of like the DeFi bubble is almost like a scam. Like, you know, the way it's running now, like a lot of the numbers are the official and etc i mean not to go over too deeply into it but he compares like by the way like you know uniswap balancer and some other uh liquidity pools like you know between each other and explains the the downside right so if you were to explain someone again like you know the diff basic difference like let's let's take let's start from balancer and uniswap right you know what's why do they exist even like you know what's so special about them what do what and why did you decide to invest in them Absolutely. Um, so, so I think like, you know, creating an exchange in the format of a decentralized crypto network is like very democratizing. So I think like one innovation on the supply side of those networks is that like, if you want to be a market maker in the real world, um, you have to go deal with order books. You have to write software that very actively manages your position you're taking on like a lot of risk that is very hard to quantify because it solely depends on this bespoke strategy that you're undertaking. Um, you need a lot of capital uh, and, and, and there's a, a lot of complexity being a market maker. When you go over into the next world in the context of a automated market maker like Uniswap or Balancer, you can be a retail person who just deposits some assets. And then it's, it's an incredibly democratizing thing to be able to join the revenue stream of an activity that traditionally has only been available to the richest, you know, most sophisticated players in the market. Now this activity is democratized and available to everyone. I mean, it's not perfect. It has risks, you know, absolutely like do your own research before undertaking this. Um, but by and large, this is a hugely democratizing technology. Secondly, there's a very important property and core value proposition of decentralized networks. And that is this 
idea of permissionlessness. When you open up this network uh, in that way, when you allow essentially anyone to come in and to create a pool for an asset, it's sort of like crowdsourcing. Um, and the net effect of this is that this uh, decentralized exchange is going to create the best coverage of assets that you've ever seen, right? So the, 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 the traditional problem with all liquidity venues in blockchain or otherwise, right, is like how do we aggregate enough liquidity to make this market actually worthwhile for our customers? And the way that AMM solved that is they have these uh, incentive programs called liquidity mining programs that essentially incentivize anyone who, um, you know, who has the token to go and create a liquidity pool for it. And as a result of Balancer's liquidity mining program, I mean, we have some of the widest coverage of assets uh, in Balancer on the market. Now, if you rewind, I mean, you've been in blockchain for a long time too, Constantine. If you rewind like a year ago, you know, or a year and a half ago, you know, the average outlook for a token is like, oh, it's probably going to take six months to list in some Asian exchange. Uh, founders are probably going to have to pay money for that. And, and then there's going to be a pump and dump, you know. There's going to be a pump and dump. You're going to have to pay some market makers to create liquidity. And by and large, there's going to be another period of uh, a few quarters as the liquidity in that asset like gets to an appropriate size. Now, what we're seeing in AMMs is that a token can create tens of millions of dollars of liquidity overnight using these mechanisms. So in a way, the reason we invested in this is just because it is a democratizing, open, efficiency technology for exchange. And the growth indexes, as I mentioned before, has been uncanny. I think, I think it will take over uh, very quickly uh, in the coming uh, quarters. Yeah, so AMM, just, you know, just a reminder, automated market maker, right, you know, for someone who's not familiar with the term. And you know, so generally, uh, the, the value proposition, like I, I, I shared fully, I just wanted to, to explain it as a person who's mm -hmm. like really involved in deeply. And I think democratization is where we are like supposed to go eventually, right, even though it's very early and there's like, what, we would probably have a few million people who actually use it, like, you know, day to day, and some others who know about it and they're like, they're, they're not a frequent user, right? Not a, like, you know, they probably bought some crypto and they know how to, to exchange, you know, them like, you know, from one cold store, cold storage or hot wallet to another, but they're not that sophisticated. So my question to you with the appearance of Balancer, Zapran, like, and the, all other great protocols, which is still like, they require a lot of take technical, like, you know, savviness, right? So what, what needs to happen so that the adoption will go to the next level from early stage adopters to, you know, to more like, you know, more massive adoption? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think what we see uh, everywhere in DeFi is this primitive of yield, right? Um, you know, I talked a lot about this concept of generalized mining for the past two years, which is the idea that people can go to protocol protocols and generate alpha by engaging on-chain protocols directly. Now, the first set of opportunities that came onto the market was staking. And what you'd see is like, they would say, hey, you know, if you like run a node or if you delegate your asset to a node, you're going to capture some of the inflation rewards of the system. But inflation rewards aren't true yield, right? Like there's all LSQL, no value is being created in the network and dilution is happening. And so, um, so, so really this is just like, a way of uh, betting on the dollar denominated appreciation of the asset and also maximizing your exposure uh, in your position. Now, what happened after that is that DeFi came along and started creating true yield. So when you're lending uh, money in a, in, a, in a lending protocol like, uh, like Compound or Union, right, um, people are actually paying you real interest uh, for the service of lending them the money, and that's true yield. And so you, as a as a very high level opportunity, you can wrap up a lot of these DeFi opportunities as simply like, here's a yield that you can make by depositing a certain asset. And here's the risk that you take uh, by depositing that asset. And um, if you can formulate a lot of these opportunities that way, then you can present them to, you know, retail investors um, at a very high level and say like, okay, this is the money market where, where you'll make the, uh, you know, 20%, but, but here's like the risk rating. And then here's a much safer one. Well, you make 5%, but you know what? Even 5% is, 
is is better what you're than what you're getting in your bank account today, and that's why I think it's a, such an interesting value proposition. So a bit of that simplification has to happen, I think. Now, like for some like pundits who's watching it, like and probably they're still like denominating everything in dollars, right? And uh, when the, the biggest criticism I've heard, like you know, which is very typical, uh, like when we're saying like five percent, eight percent, whatever that might be, which is exciting, obviously, which is higher than any traditional institution can provide you. At the same time, what they're saying, like, is essentially, well, guys, well, with the volatility that you're offering with your, like, shit coins, right, you know, that my 8% may end up, like, you know, in a loss, right? And, like, even then I wait for one year, I, I wholeheartedly stake, you know, and I believe in the project, but the project itself or the protocol might not perform well. So how do you mitigate those risks, you know, like, because right now, if you can give some practical examples, like, you know, people who are staking, you know, let's yeah. say they're, they're taking yield in Bitcoin, they're taking yield in whatever stable coin or they're versus they're taking yield in some uh, alternative crypto assets. Yes. I mean, I think the basic distinction, I think you laid it out quite well. The basic distinction is, you know, is your asset volatile or is it stable? So I think if someone wants is someone is uh, new to blockchain and they, they're not fully cognizant of the risks and not fully comfortable with the risks, you know, a very basic thing that you can do is you could just take some dollars, you could send it to your, let's say, Coinbase account, convert it to USDC, which is the digital on-chain version of, of dollars, and then you could put it into some kind of deposit uh, or, or yield, uh, you know, yield opportunity. Um, and that way you don't take on uh, weird token market risk, right? You're just kind of dealing in dollars and you're enjoying, you know, most likely a, a better rate that you're enjoying in your bank. And that in this world of COVID and money printing globally, right? Like it's almost like you're silly not to be doing that at this point. Um, now, one as people get more sophisticated in blockchain and I've seen, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who, uh, who are my friends and my, and my acquaintances who I've gotten into blockchain and work with them to, to kind of understand how they think about it, to help them navigate the space. What I see is that when people get a little bit more sophisticated, they realize like, hey, you know, there's some interesting risk reward opportunities in blockchain, and maybe I can allocate a little bit of my capital to a volatile asset. And once you've made the decision to be long in a volatile asset, then it becomes silly not to put that volatile asset to productive use because you're taking on the market risk of it anyway. So you might as well deposit it into something that gets you a true yield and mitigates the volatility uh, that you're taking on. And so in both cases, like, you know, it, it kind of depends on who you are, what you want to do. It kind of depends on your risk tolerance. Um, but once you're in, I think, uh, you know, th these kinds of DeFi opportunities are actually quite interesting for, uh, for, for mitigating risk itself. Now, if you were to take yourself in the shoes, like for, because uh, I, I get like, you know, I get this question a lot from friends, you know, who want to get in, they don't know yet, like, you know, what what is DeFi, like, you know, and how do you consume it right, with what sauce, but, but they're interested, they're reading a lot of articles, they're genuinely interested, and they say, well, I'm not ready, like, you know, they're, the minimum, the fund minimum typically is like at least 100k, right, they say, like, it's too much for me for now, like, I want to try it with 10, 20k, just for the sake of example, right, and where would you advise me to go, like, and I'm always, like, confused, you know what, I am, first of all, I, I cannot give you any best advice, like, you have to research yourself, however, <laughs> like, you should read all those articles, right, and, and by the way, one of them, I've sent your article about the DeFi protocols, and, the, and, just imagine yourself like who's starting like you know this new journey right and and you don't know how to even assess the risk of the highly volatile like crypto assets like where would you start like you know like one thing we've mentioned like you know okay you buy usdc on coinbase it's a very safe harbor right you know you cannot go wrong with that right so well again this is not an advice but, like there's less risks right but again, we're talking about like some other like uh, uh, tokens mm. which are more volatile. Like, how would you? Where would you go to even read about them? Like, and understand? Like, you know, what what will be your first investment? Yeah, um, <laughs> and I'm actually a terrible person to ask about this because I I often don't take the you know the consumer view of these things. I'm very like in the weeds. Um, but my impression actually has been that you know the a lot of the the YouTube folks. Um, have been doing a great job of sort of highlighting the functionality behind some of these assets. Now, you should be extremely careful 
Um, you should be very cognizant of the fact that whoever you're listening to online might own tokens and might be biased in certain ways, right? And you should always like double check the research across a few sources. If you're technical, you should read the smart contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, a couple of concrete resources would probably be like, like um, there's there's a gentleman named uh, DeFi Dad uh, on Twitter. Yeah. I think I think his name is Travis, and he makes great videos about DeFi where he shows you um, you know how to interact with some of these protocols like Wi-Fi. Um, you know what they're supposed to be doing because it could get confusing sometimes. Um, and you know, I highly recommend checking out something like that. You mentioned Ivan on tech. I have a friend who, for a, a long, long time friend of mine who like loves Ivan on tech and he rants and raves about uh, his videos all the time. Um, and then, you know, I do think that in the future, like a lot of people will put, a lot of consumers or like kind of higher level people will participate through managed interfaces. So if you look at products like um, stackinvest.com, right, this is a, somewhere where you can buy a, you know, an index of tokens that are volatile, but you could use a credit card to do it and you don't have to worry about holding it in the wallet and whatever, unless you want to. Um, I suspect that in the future, and I think today, uh, Coinbase might have like deposits where you can earn a DeFi style uh, APY and hopefully in the future, um, you know, products like Coinbase will be looking through to, pro to protocols like Zapper uh, to get kind of the best APYs and the best opportunities, um, you know, going forward. So I, I think like managed products and just kind of getting out on social media and, and uh, doing a little bit of due diligence goes a long way in, in DeFi. Okay, so we went through basics because that was the request, you know, like, so now we can go to Zapper and more, go more technical as you love right now. So tell us about your investment in Zapper and tell us, you know, like, why do you think, again, it's uh, the next big thing? Yes, um, so a really strong signal for me as an investor is, like, if I'm using a product 200,000 times a day, um, I want to, like, reach out and talk to the team. And so I really found myself... Uh, searching for a DeFi dashboard. There are a bunch of them out there. And I have to say, Zapper was just the one that achieved kind of the best coverage, period. Um, you know, this problem that you have in these dashboards is that, like, they'll support, like, 80% of the assets in your wallet, but not 100%. So you're, like, looking at 80% here, but then the long tail, mm -hmm. you got to go to that one, but they don't support others. So you never really know exactly how much money you have in your wallet. It's very, very annoying. Um, and, and could be dangerous, right? Like you could be missing opportunities. So what I found is that Zapper really just created kind of the best coverage of integrating with smart contracts, allowing you to use them easily. You could, for example, go into the into liquidity pools right through the interface. You could do staking rewards right through the interface. And so I reached out to the team and with the mind that like, oh, this is a centralized company doing a very traditional dashboard product. Um, and what I found out was that, as a matter of fact, Zapper is doing a decentralized network. So they, they have ah. this, it's, it's totally it's totally not obvious from the, from the interface today. We're not yet in that phase. But what's happening on the back end of Zapper is these, this idea of things called Zaps. And Zaps are basically a way of aggregating any number of DeFi transactions into a single Ethereum transaction. That really simplifies the way that you can interact with DeFi and yield-bearing opportunities. It also saves you a ton of money on gas. And the fact that this is a decentralized marketplace of people, of engineers really, who create Zaps for people who are users who use Zaps, I think is super strong because of that core value proposition of permissionlessness. I think very soon we'll see that there are just thousands and tens of thousands of different zaps that people can use and they will uh you know evolve and, and optimize opportunities as as the market evolves and i think that this format of an open network will will create the best possible coverage of all defi opportunities because of this permissionless self-service property that it has and so once i heard that narrative um i, I said there's just one last thing that we need here, and that is a token. Will Zapper have a token? And it turns out that Zapper is going to be one of the first marketplaces that has this concept of volume mining, which is using 
inc token incentives to encourage people to transact on their marketplace. And when I heard that, I was like, that's it. I'm sold. Um, and we made the investment. So if I may ask you just a clarification. So because my, my biggest concern was also like the payment of like high fees, because essentially gas is what is like, you know, you pay a network fee, right? So how, uh, in a percentage, you know, uh, percentage wise, how much are you saving if you were going to use like, you know, the Zazz? Yeah. I mean, frankly, these days it could be quite a bit, right? So like imagine a transact, imagine you, imagine you want to do like a complicated set of steps in DeFi. Let's say you want to put some ether into maker. You want to withdraw a loan of DAI. You want to put that DAI in a liquidity pool and then you want to take the LP shares and put that into a liquidity mining program. I mean, you're talking about like four or five transactions to do that. I'm not, I might not even be counting approvals, right? So you, you might have six or seven transactions there. And um, for each of those transactions, like right now, you're going to pay like at least a few dollars, but sometimes like the last week has been really expensive. It could, could be as much as a hundred dollars for, it depends for on the volume also, right? It, it, it depends on the, the, the network traffic and, and a lot of other factors, ether price, all these kinds of factors. Now what a zap would do is it would take those seven transactions and collapse, uh, all those seven transaction fees into one. And that one transaction fee might be slightly bigger than every individual one, but altogether, if you sum them up, you're, you're doing like an awesome cost savings, right? So that's how, that's how Zapper works. And then for the convenience of that, I mean, that creates a margin, right? So for, for the convenience of that, you might be willing to pay Zapper a certain fee. Mm -hmm. um, e e even more than convenience, you know, and I go by my, by my dad, who's, uh, who's, who dabbles in DeFi, obviously, because I told him <laughs> about it. But, uh, but my dad, you know, he, he, he's not like a, a super sophisticated user of DeFi and he gets it, but it, it's like sometimes hard to reason about all these different interfaces about what does it mean to have LP shares and staking it here and putting it there and why isn't it not in my wallet? And so when he discovered Zapper, he was like, you mean I have a single button that I can just press and that gets me my rewards? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he's like, great, I'm never going to use anything else, right? So, so that convenience factor, I think, creates a lot of like brand affinity and product affinity with users who are less sophisticated. And I think it's likely to be like pretty sticky. No, I'm 100% I'm, uh, I'm with you. Like I, I, I hesitated to use it, to be frank with you, but after this interview, I will use it 100%. Like, because not only is it, I love user experience, but also like, you know, as I understand you, like you, you're essentially, you can, uh, like match five different transactions into one, right? You know, like, and that's where the cost efficiency yes. comes from, right? So or I'll give you another like really, really practical example, right? So a lot of times people move capital between pools. Mm -hmm. So you have to like, I don't know, take Ether and Ample Forth and put it into this pool. And then when you're done with that investment, you got to take it out, convert it, move it into a different pool, right? And it's, it all becomes like many different transactions. On Zapper, you can do this thing called rebalancing from one pool to another, meaning you can take some capital that's in a pool and just transmogrify the shares of that pool into the shares of another pool, um, and you don't have to worry about the details. So that's another great feature. Wow, that's impressive. You know, I'm definitely gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely gonna try it out, right? So you mentioned also another topic like in liquidity mining, right? And we talked about like you know what's like you know, different, if you can talk about a little bit different crypto economic mechanism and like, and how do you, how do you build your investment thesis around it? You know, that's interesting to know as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so my, 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 really the example in my mind is Balancer. Like what we saw the Balancer team do this year has been pretty incredible. You know, when we invested in Balancer last year, uh, we, we certainly asked about tokens, but the feedback from the team was, you know, maybe we'll have tokens in the future. We sort of want to see how the market develops and what the right model is. And we thought that was uh, correct at the time. And then Balancer launched in, you know, in February, they launched, a, you know, their, their kind of swap interface, very similar to Uniswap. It kind of sat out there. You know, we tweeted about it, but usually it's pretty much like nobody really cared in this space. There wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of activity. And then what happened in May is that the Balancer team noticed that some of these Liquidity mining programs were coming to market. Compound, of course, was first. And they announced a liquidity mining program. They didn't even implement it. They simply said, you know, guys, if you start adding pools to the network, if you start adding liquidity, 
we're going to take note of your addresses, and then later we're going to launch a token, and we're going to pay you in arrears for uh, you know, some rewards for this activity. And as soon as they announced that, before they even implemented anything, um, activity on the network jumped 10x in every KPI. I mean, like number of pools, number of liquidity providers, number of assets, um, volume, revenue, like all these KPIs went 10x. And then about three weeks later, they actually surprise launched the token at, at lunchtime one day. And, uh, and as soon as that happened, and the token aggregated liquidity, like millions and millions of dollars of depth of liquidity in like an afternoon. And it was like almost like something never had, that we've never seen in blockchain before. It, it just aggregated liquidity on its own platform. And as the token went liquid and these rewards became real, all those KPIs went another 3.5x. So all in all, in like a span of five weeks, we did like a 35x of all of the fundamental activity on the network. And then if you, you, you know, you could pull up the Dune dashboard and you could see all the growth um, that happened since then. I, I'll read you the numbers as they stand today. There's something like half a billion dollars of cumulative balance for liquidity. There's um, 1.7 billion dollars of all-time volume. This is for a project that launched in February. Um, there are, you know, just over, over uh, in the last couple of days, we're over 1,500 unique uh, daily active LPs. Anyway, if you want the details, you could, you could check out the dashboard. But the point being is that this program became a highly competitive vector for the Balancer project. It achieved tremendous coverage. It achieved fundamental activity. And of course, it's generated a bunch of revenue for LPs. And so as investors, we're always, we're always concerned with this idea, like, are we creating fundamental value in these often speculative economics of projects? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. If you take a look at Compound, their speculative economics caused a bunch of fundamental activity in the platform. Fundamental activity was uh, created commissions in the protocol. And in the future, uh, the token holders of Compound might vote to redirect the revenue of the protocol to token holders. And that will be a future cash flow. And suddenly, you're in a position now where you have a token which has a very, very traditional and uh, you know financial model of how to value this thing um, that might be applicable in the future and, and could easily be analyzed using traditional tools. Um, and of course, that being said, the space has been very exuberant. Multiples are high. Like there's a lot of high expectations, but I think like over time, you know, we'll develop really standard models of how these products come to market and we'll have like very concrete valuation frameworks for the assets that accrue their value. Yeah, those are great numbers for such a young project. I mean, you're right. It's, uh, I, I, and it's not a, not, not one example or two. There are many of the like uh, projects that are booming right now. So just to also understand the basics, uh, when you mention you're investing in some, something like you know, some project like Balancer, right? You know, so are you still invested in equity of the company or there there's some combination of things? That's a great, it's a great question. I, I think like on average, um, sort of the idea of soft notes uh, has, has started to, to kind of go out of style. And I think the more common uh, structure that we see as investors is this idea that you become an equity investor in, in kind of the founding team. And then as an equity investor, you get prorated into the token supply in some way. And this is also advantageous because, excuse me, my mental model of how the teams operate is, is off, it's often like this. Like they'll create the decentralized network, but then later they're going to want to go build a proprietary business on top. Maybe they're doing consulting. Maybe they're providing whatever node or nodes or infrastructure, whatever value added services they want to do on top of the network. Um, that's going to be a traditional business funded by traditional equity. And the fact that they had that equity already in the first place and you're already an investor there just helps to align everybody's interests. So that's a more common model we see these days is like equity plus proration or conversion mm -hmm. into tokens. Now it's good to explain because you know a lot of people expect like they I think there there might be some confusion when you're here like oh you know a decentralized distributed network the idea that they they have no shareholders right you know the idea that it belongs to to the people right at the same time they hear okay just traditional fund just invested in the project right so there is like you know confusion there and it's good to to understand it from the first hand from your 
perspective, right? So now we we can actually go to I know to the topic which I told you openly, like I'm, <laughs> I'm not a big fan like of the NFTs, like and I have my own reasons for that, but I'm still eager to learn. And you know, you, I know that one of the topics that excites me is your investment in Dapper Labs, right? And then generally, like the marketplaces and you know, like the combination of NFTs and uh, you know, the DeFi, they go well together, right? And also. Yeah. Maybe you can talk about like, you know, about your thesis, about why do you think that the space is going to grow and specifically this, uh, uh, this angle. Absolutely. And, and maybe, maybe I could provide a perspective that, um, that might, might be interesting for people who aren't as close to space. And, and here's a perspective, right? Like, it's really easy to mistake what's happening in NFTs right now as a bunch of people trading cat pictures on on blockchains right for money <laughs> yeah and when when you when you when you look at the that way like it seems a little bit silly but here's my theory about what's actually going on here uh what's actually going on here like like we often hear this question why would i pay for blockchain art when i can just right click on the image and download it to my desktop and put it on my desktop like why would i pay for it and and the answer is because you're not paying for the image, you're paying for the intellectual property rights to that image, which is a very, very different thing. And so when you frame it that way, what you realize is that owning the rights to some digital content is actually very powerful because it, 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 it confers all these rights to you. It, you can own it, you can sell it, you can lend it, you can uh, earn a royalty stream on it, you can put it in a museum and they'll pay you kind of a fee for doing that. You can uh, get it licensed in the movie. And then every time the movie plays, like they're going to pay you a little bit of money for that and so on and so forth. So if you look at NFTs as digital property rights, then what's actually happening here is that uh, we're dealing with an asset class, a financial asset class, not cat pictures on the internet. That's, that's point number one. And point number two is we're completely underestimating how much digital content there is. There's something like uh, 2 billion images that are uploaded to the internet every day, but there's like 100,000 albums uh, that come out every year. There's like uh, 200 billion tweets that happen every year. There are marketplaces for 3D models. There are marketplaces for stock photography. There are marketplaces for videos, for eBooks. If you count the number of objects that are digital uh, digital content online, it's like in the tens of trillions of objects. And if you think that like one percent of those objects might be like interesting and valuable, and if you think that like the value of those ones is like a penny, like if you do that math, like it's still just like an enormous market. And so. The other interesting thing is like we've never really owned anything on the internet. Like when you go read, you know, Amazon ebooks, you don't really own the ebook. You you own a license to the ebook. If you go uh, watch a movie on Netflix, you don't own the movie. You don't own the rights to the movie. You don't own the royalties to the movie. You don't own the royalty stream of Taylor Swift's album Lover, you know, it's, and so on and so forth. So the idea is like once you can own the IP to this stuff it's actually it unlocks tremendous value for the reason that you can put them on secondary markets and sell them. So it's like that's it. So, so the, yeah, the, the reason that I'm excited about NFTs is partially because of art. I mean, I'm an artist. I think art is really cool, but, but it's primarily wearing my investor hat and saying, this is a huge financial asset class that we have never had before that is about to become liquid. So what you're saying is before the uh, the the Sotheby's of the world, the the Christie's of the world, there were like you know like those private marketplaces for ultra rich. You know now it's gonna come on down like you know to like even smaller like you know more simple uh, assets and even like you know, I know that you you paint. You know like we have to reveal that you know, to the audience, right? <laughs> and I've seen that those are beautiful paintings. So let me ask you one practical question: Have you have you ever tried to digitize your painting and sell it? Absolutely. I, I'm actually an artist on Super Rare. Um, and if you want to see some of my stuff, you can go to firstedition.xyz slash jbrook. <laughs> and I have a bunch of NFTs you could buy. I've sold a bunch of NFTs. I'm, I'm not a prolific 
like seller of NFTs. I, I don't have that much time to devote to this, but I've definitely sold a few uh, pieces of generative art that I made and a few uh, uh, digital art pieces as well. So how have like, again, a very practical like advice from you as a person who already sold your personal non-fungible tokens, right? So imagine an artist is watching this interview, right? You know, and he's saying, wow, that's a great idea. I want to go and digitize my painting because I know like, you know, I'm a great artist, right? So what will be the first step? Uh, just go to async.art and engage those guys. And they have like this amazing uh, onboarding flow that they're working on for new artists that will make uh, make it easy. If they just want to try it like right now, if they have some kind of digital painting uh, or, or JPEG or, or something like that, that they just want to try tokenizing, go on rareable.com and you know to the issuance section and they have like a very user-friendly way you can log in with your phone you know, and, and, and try it out. Perfect, thank you. Uh, I think that will be valuable for people who, who are into this. <laughs> so, uh, I know that again, being a person you know who like smart as you are, but also like you know, I'm sure you had a lot of uh, interesting, versatile experiences, right? So, what was the funniest thing like you know that you've experienced in the industry, like you know, some comic situation? Like, I'm sure you have a bunch of them. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, it's uh, the blockchain industry has been a pretty small group of people by and large for, for a number of years. It's now, it's now starting to grow quite a bit, but um, you know, it's a little bit, it's like working with colleagues and a little bit, it's like being with friends when you go to some of these conferences, you know, prior, prior to COVID. Um, I'm sure there's been a lot of stuff, but funniest experience. Ooh, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> there's just been so much. I'll tell you this. My mind is always blown uh, when something happens that like has never happened before. So when moments like when the Dow raised, you know, $150 million in a week and then spectacularly exploded, when, uh, when I saw sort of the first major cryptocurrency fork, you know, of ETC and Ethereum parting ways, like, you know, when I see like balancer pools just like raising liquidity overnight, things like that are just, you feel like you're, you're part of, you know, a process that is, is just so new and, and has never happened before. And it, it's very exciting. Uh, and, and of course, some of it is really funny because people just put, put a lot of memes out there uh, and, and investors really, really underestimate the power of, of icons and emojis and memes um, <laughs> and how they work to really build communities of these, of these networks. I see. So, and in terms of the uh, the book that you would recommend to people, like you know, if you want to dab into the DeFi world and understand better, like you know, more complex, uh, I think maybe a, a research paper or a book. Like I know that you you you've published a lot of things on your YouTube channel and on your blog. Like maybe some other experts that you think are great and explaining those, like you know, in a very simplified language. Yeah. Um, so I think. Most recently, I purchased uh, Camilla Russo's The Infinite Machine. So I think she did a great job of kind of outlining, um, you know, the, the history of Ethereum, which I sort of lived through, uh, at least from, from, from New York's perspective. Um, you know, and, and I, think, I think that's a great book to kind of get people into the mindset of, you know, what it means to be crypto native, like what people went through to get to where we are uh, today. Um, you know, and, I, and I've always been a huge fan of, of Andreas Antonopoulos and everything that he, he's produced. So, so all of his books, I think I, I highly recommend. No, thank you. I, I've, uh, Antonopoulos, I've read everything as well, like, you know, but I haven't uh, bought yet, like, you know, so I, read her, I read her blog, you know, that's, uh, that's a game yeah. as well, right? So that's a great job. So, I, I mean, generally, uh, I think we've covered uh, a lot about, you know, like the DeFi indexes and uh, about your your fun thesis, like, and I'm sure we can talk about, like, in, about those things in, in hours, but, you know, I try... Uh, as I've received some feedbacks from the people like that, it's hard for them to listen about the technical stuff for more than one hour. So that's <laughs> why so I'm trying to limit it. But we are both in New York, so I'm I'm happy to to catch up more. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really sincerely wish you well. And I know Coin Fund is going to flourish regardless. And uh, it's uh, 
it's a great pleasure talking to you, Jake, and uh, I'm sure yeah. we're going to see a lot of great investments from your side. Thank you so much for having me, Constantine, and, and, uh, and I really appreciate your depth as well, and you've asked great questions, and that's always really what makes an interview is, is what the questions are, not what the answers are. So I um, appreciate you, uh, you having me on. Thank you. Thank you.